joking aside there, it is truly a joy and honor and privilege to be here with you this morning and just look at our God as he's revealed himself in his word. And so we're going to do that this morning from Isaiah 6, which has been just a truly a formative passage in my life, in my personal walk with the Lord, but truly an inspiring and convicting one in my ministry as a pastor and just a husband and a father and a man of God. And so Isaiah chapter 6, if you would join me in verse 1 and read along with me as I read our passage this morning. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. Father, we come before you this morning just wanting to hear from you. We want to know you. We want to, shall we say, even experience and encounter you in a fresh way, Lord. Father, we may say we know you and that we behold you, yet our knowing of you and our beholding of you is... Uh, area where we can dive so much deeper. And so, Father, I just pray this morning that as your word is preached, you'd be honored and glorified above all things, that you'd build up your church, you'd encourage your people, you'd lead people in this room who don't yet know you to Jesus through the proclamation of your good news and the gospel. So, Father, be with me as I speak. Lord, I need uh, just wisdom and clarity and humility Father, I am a sinner saved by grace, just here to deliver a message that I pray will honor and glorify you and bless your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Maybe you've heard of this guy here on the screen. His name is Paul Tripp, and commenting on the glory of God, he says this, human beings are hardwired by God for glory, for awe, to have our minds blown, our hearts expanded, to be taken beyond the normal, the mundane, to be absorbed into what is wonderful and beautiful and satisfying. I think we could just summarize with saying that God has created us to behold that which is indeed truly glorious and to be satisfied in that which is truly beautiful. I got to experience that truth on a very small way when my wife and I celebrated our 15th anniversary in Sedona, Arizona. And I think I skipped over something there. There we go, in Sedona, Arizona. And you can see it's a beautiful part of our country. If you've never been there, there are these red rock mountains everywhere, and it is just a beautiful place. 
Now, while we were there, though, I was told you have to go see the Grand Canyon. And to be honest with you, I was not feeling it. I was like, man, I don't want to go see this big, nasty hole in the ground. Like, what, what could be so fun about that? But we were in that part of the country, and I said, let's take the two-hour drive and do the uh, obligated Grand Canyon trip so I could see what all the fuss was about. And to be honest with you, when I step to the rim of one of those views, you see that in this picture here, my mouth dropped. I stood in awe and felt small and in that moment beheld the hugeness, the beauty, and dare I say glory of the Grand Canyon. And every point of that trip for the next like four hours, with every turn, with every rim, my mouth dropped. An utterly beautiful thing. What I thought was going to be a boring, typical, unimpressive hold in the ground wound up blowing my mind when I encountered its beauty. Which brings me to a question this morning. When you see this, do you think of God? Or do you, when you think of God, do you have a view of God like I originally had of the Grand Canyon? Do you think God is perhaps unimpressive or maybe just a little boring to you at times? Do you approach God in his word and, and in worship and, and come to church and gather with God's people just expecting God to, to be with us but just somewhat be ordinary? Do you seek after God with just simply a sense of obligation or duty, not really desiring or expecting to be blown away by his greatness? Has God become so familiar to you as you've walked with him for many, many years perhaps that you've seemed to lose a sense of awe and wonder of him? If these statements describe you, then I would say, I relate to you as well at times in my own walk with the Lord. And I believe when these statements do describe us, we need to desperately pray and seek the Lord to encounter our God. Because when you encounter our God, the one who created the heavens and the earth and created each of us, the response is far from boredom. It's jaw-drop, mind-blowing, heart-exploding response. Our God is mind-blowing. And each of us, as Tripp said here, are indeed hardwired for these things by God. But God has hardwired each and every one of us and each and every person all throughout New Orleans and all over the world to be amazed by God. And it's only by encountering him and being absorbed in him can we truly live a life where we are amazed by what is truly beautiful and glorious, God himself. It's only by beholding him that we truly move out of a life of mundaneness and ordinariness and move into the extraordinary life that God has called us to as his people. And so in our text today, in Isaiah chapter 6, we're going to witness this prophet Isaiah colliding with God, encountering God in a very real and powerful way. Now this morning, we may not encounter God exactly like Isaiah did. As a matter of fact, we probably won't. But as we collide with him in his word, we can collide with the same God in the same powerful way. And my prayer for each of us this morning is that as we collide with God in his word by the power of his spirit, that we truly will know him, be transformed by him, be in awe of him, and live our lives 
totally surrender to him. So as we encounter God, it's been my prayer this week, not just for you, but for myself, that we would leave here today encountering God, but also realizing that encountering God results in, it leads to a high view of God. Hear me clearly. You will not behold, exalt, or worship God for who he is if you make him less than who he is. Your beholding of him, your worship of him, your amazement of him and satisfaction in him begins with you encountering him as he is and accepting him as he is and embracing a lifelong high view of him. Isaiah 6.1 says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Now it says this glorious encounter that Isaiah has with God is in the year of King Uzziah's death. He was a good king, a king of the southern kingdom of Israel. He was a good king uh, over Judah for 52 years. Israel enjoyed prosperity and even intimate worship with Yahweh God during his reign. They worshiped God under his rule. But all that changed when Uzziah decided that he was perhaps sovereign and God was not. He walked into the temple, burned some incense on the altar that was only reserved for God's priest at the time. And in this moment of Uzziah's sinfulness, we see that his view of God was small. And his view of himself was big. This led to him being struck with leprosy and not only losing his throne, but also losing his life. And then think of the people of Israel. Their king of 52 years is now removed. Their prosperity, their worship of God is about to be taken away. They're actually turning to worship false gods of all the nations. They're vulnerable, they're shaken, and they're anxious. And what Isaiah sees as he looks up, as he gets into this glorious time with God in his throne room, he sees a sovereign God. He sees that God is sovereign. And if we are going to have a high view of God, we will see God as he's revealed in Scripture as the sovereign Lord of the universe. The Lord is indeed in a position of all authority, all power, all majesty. He is Lord of all. He is sovereign over all. Isaiah said he's lofty and exalted. He's lifted up above all things, meaning there's no one above him. He's exalted as Adonai God. He is on his throne. He's in a place of majesty, glory, power, authority. He indeed is Lord. And while Israel's human king has been dethroned, the king, the king of kings, is on his throne and will always be enthroned as sovereign God. Isaiah also says that the train of his robe is filling the entire temple. This is a picture of the majesty and glory and power and rule and reign of God in all of his royalty, in his majesty. Think about it, when you watch some of the the queens or or princesses make a procession into a, a certain event or a bride that walks down the aisle and the train of her dress is long, right? You tend to think, wow, that must be someone of significance, of importance. 
And the longer the train of someone whose royal's robe is, the more power, the more authority, the more sovereign that they are. And it says here that this robe that God has, the train of his robe filling the entire temple, would make even the most powerful king or queen ever to live in this earth make their robe look like one of those little tags that's on the back of your shirt right now. It would fill up this whole room and wrap and wrap and wrap, signifying utmost power, sovereignty, and authority. Let me just ask you this morning, when you think of God, do you think of that? Do you think of him? Do you know him? Do you acknowledge him in this way? Do you see God the Father and his son, Jesus Christ, our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, as lofty and exalted Lord and sovereign over all things? Better yet, do you see him as the sovereign Lord of your life? Are there areas in your life right now where you say, yes, I can say that, but listen, there, there are certain areas in my heart and my life that I just haven't surrendered under his lordship, that I have not surrendered unto him, that I have not let go of because I want to remain in control of those, Lord. Let me encourage you today, lift those up, surrender those to his sovereign lordship. And as sovereign God, as I say here, do you trust him in all areas of your life? Because the more you trust him, the more you will surrender those things in your life. And, and the more you see him as sovereign and in control, you will begin to trust him at a deeper level, even when your world and your life is falling apart, even when things are uncertain, even when things are, unshake, are shaken all over you, you can realize your sovereign God is not shaken. He's not prancing around and pacing around in his heavenly throne room, wondering how to fix the broken pieces of your life. No, he's seated, not inactively seated, actively seated as the God who is in control of every detail of your life. We can trust him, and we know, we look out into this world, and we see evil and darkness in our world, in our city, and even in our own hearts at times, right? If we're honest. And we may think sometimes that evil and darkness is, is winning, has won, and will win, but perish that thought. Because our God is sovereign, and it is his plan that is being executed by his sovereign power and authority. So no matter how bad the darkness looks, realize this. God has won, is winning, and will win. And the light will shine in the darkness, no matter how dark the darkness may be. Because he's the sovereign God of the universe. In your life, you may also be experiencing some form of crisis. We all do. The scripture says when you experience trials, right? So it's not if, it's when. And they come in all kinds of form, shapes and forms, finances, relationships, health issues. They just come out of nowhere. There's hardness. There's strife. And, and I just want to encourage you this morning, when, you, when tragedy strikes your family, when it strikes you, when you are just can't see anything past your tears, we would do well to remember he's God. He's on his throne. He's sovereign. He's in control. And sometimes as believers, I think we need to take the sovereignty of God a little bit further sometimes. It's, it's easy to say, yes, he's sovereign. He's in control. But what we struggle with is God good in his sovereignty, right? And I would say this morning he certainly is because Scripture says, Though why we may not understand the pain he brings us through and sovereignly ordains in our life, that he uses all of that for his glory and for our good. It's a beautiful thing. So our sovereign God, 
To have this high view of God, we must see him as sovereign, leading us to a deeper surrender and a deeper trust of him. But secondly, we must also see, as Isaiah saw, that God is holy. That God is holy, leading us to fear him. It says in verse 2, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Here we see Isaiah's attention turned from the throne of God where he is seated, the Lord. And, and here's just a little side nugget I can't break down too much here this morning. I believe who Isaiah is seeing is actually a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. I believe this is Jesus enthroned as the sovereign king and king and Lord of lords, the same one we spoke about in Revelation chapter 4 with all the angels singing, holy, holy, holy. This is Jesus. And here we see these angelic beings, these seraphims circling and swarming the Lord of hosts, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are consumed with and burning with not their own glory, but the glory of God. These creatures, it says, are covering their faces. Now, for angelic creatures to be still in the presence of God, they had to be sinless. These creatures are sinless. They did not rebel against God. Yet, even in their perfection, even in their not sinning against God, they cover their faces and dare not even gaze upon the Holy One. It says they, they cover up their feet. And these, these are, that is showing like a humble posture, a service unto the Lord. Their lives are for the Lord, even though that they are these beautiful Massive beings in and of themselves. If one of them were to come crashing in, you know, get shot down out of heaven somehow and crash into this room today, we would be tempted to fall down and worship them. Yet they be the one that is worthy of true worship and cover their feet in a lowly posture. And they cry, holy, 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 emphasizing the infinite holiness of God. In Hebrew tradition and culture and writing, if they wanted to emphasize something as being, as being the greatest of, of what they were trying to emphasize, for emphasis, they would repeat. They would say, holy, 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 to emphasize God's utter holiness. And it kind of works like this. Here's some confession time to you all this week from the, guys who's, the guy who's from New Orleans that's not here in New Orleans that much, but my favorite dessert this week has been king cake, all right? It has been, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to make you hungry. It's not lunch yet, but let me tell you, it's not just any king cake. I don't know what king cake you roll with. I don't mean to offend you if this isn't your king cake, but um, we had a Randazzo's praline and cream cheese that sounds terrible, but it was utterly amazing. Now, if I stood here this morning and said there was probably no sin involved in eating that cake, I would be lying to you. Um, I confessed it to God. I believe I fully repented, but I think that's a lie. Um, because if there's some sitting at home today, when I get back at my wife's parents' house, I'm eating it again. I'll repent on the way back to Knoxville. Pray for me. But I tell you this morning, that king cake wasn't just good. It wasn't just good, good. It was good, good, good. 
you get what I'm saying. You're thinking this must be the best king cake ever. And that's what these seraphim are doing in heaven. They're not talking about king cake. They're talking about the king, that he is holy, holy, holy. Holiness on top of holiness on top of holiness. He is that which is holy, his infinite holiness. And notice what they're not saying. This is interesting because I think holiness sometimes is perhaps one of the most swept under the rug or avoided uh, attributes of God because it makes us uncomfortable. We would probably prefer them to say love, 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 right? Or grace, 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 compassion, mercy, even justice, wrath, right? We, we think of God being all those things, and he is. But these beings who have swarmed around the Lord since the day they were created and will for all eternity look at him and describe him as holy, holy, holy. Holiness is the sum of God's attributes and all of his other attributes flow out of his perfect holiness. So I want to encourage us as a church, don't just quickly when you think of God, jump to his love and his grace and his mercy and his compassion. He is all of those things, and you have to get there. But I would say you truly can't understand the beauty of the depths of his grace and his mercy and his love and compassion until you understand something of the depths of his holiness. And so what does it mean that God is holy then? Good luck trying to explain it, because I don't believe any words can fully describe, nor can we fully comprehend the holiness of God. We can say it means that he is completely set apart from all things. There is nothing like him, no one, nothing, and, and nothing will ever be like him. He's perfect in all that he is and all that he thinks and all that he says and all that he does. He is without the action of sin, but even at a deeper level, he is without the action of sin because his very nature is without sin. And all these things would be right. But no words can fully describe his holiness. I like what my friend A.W. Tozer says about this. He's not really my friend, but we're brothers, so he wouldn't mind. He says, God is not now any holier than he ever was. And he never was holier than now. He did not get his holiness from anyone nor from anywhere. He himself is the holiness. He is the all-holy, the holy one. His he is holiness itself. Listen to this. Beyond the power of thought to grasp or words to express, holiness is even beyond the power of all praise. We cannot really understand the holiness of God. He's revealed it to us in ways we can understand it. But if we did, I think we would respond like people who encountered God in his holiness. Scripture trembled. They fell down in fear. They feared God in all of his holiness. So let me ask you this morning, do you fear God? Do you fear him? When's, when's the last time you sat in his presence, in his word, and, or in prayer, and thought of his infinite holiness and greatness, of his utter sinful perfection, of his wrath and his justice, and all of his attributes wrapped up in his holiness, and just simply trembled? in his presence. That's the appropriate response to the holiness of God. The whole foundations of the temple are shaking. Smoke is coming up because this is a holy 
God. And Isaiah is left terrified. We also see that not only is God holy, that God is glorious. And he is worthy of our worship. His glory is a jaw-dropping, amazing glory. These angels also say, these seraphim also say that the whole earth is full of his glory. Not just the temple, not just the immediate surroundings. Every square inch of the earth declares the glory of God. There is not a single, tiniest, smallest speck in which the glory of God does not reach and does not declare the glory of God. The scripture says that the heavens declare the glory of God. And if we truly step back and think of the glory of God like my jaw dropped at the Grand Canyon, I believe our jaws would fall off considering his glory and his greatness. I mean, think of this. This verse says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who has marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills on a pair of scales? I mean, have you ever stood before the ocean and saw it in its vastness and infiniteness and strength and power and you go, wow, look at this? God goes, that's okay, I I hold all the oceans right here in the palm of my hand. I mean, when you think about uh, the, all of the dust in all of the world, God knows every single speck of dust. When you think of the sky and the heavens and, and how it just looks so vast and infinite, God just kind of goes, okay, look, it's going to begin here and end here, and here's, here's the sky. When we think about the mountains, you know, I get to see the Smoky Mountains where I live. I, I saw the Grand Canyon that has mountain-type stuff. You think of Mount Everest. And how big and strong they are. And yet God plays with those mountains like they're little rocks. As if a little, like a little boy would play with rocks and put them on a little seesaw scale. God is glorious. He is big. He's amazing. And these seraphim who circle him ever since their creation and will do so for all eternity never get bored with him. Never are not just amazed by our God. Yet in our sinfulness sometimes, we sit back and we say we're kind of bored with Jesus. We're bored with the Christian life. We're bored with our Bibles. We're bored with church. And I would just say, friends, if that's our heart attitude at times, we need to come and encounter our God again. We need to see the glory of God, the Father, in the face of Jesus Christ and just worship Bored and God do not belong in the same sentence. They don't even belong in the same book or in the same universe. Anyone who truly encounters God will never look and respond with the response of boredom. Only jaw-dropping amazement and worship. And as soon as we have this high and holy view of God, it actually shows us even something about ourselves that contributes to our high view of God, because a high view of God will always lead to a humble view of self. This is Isaiah's reaction, and it should be ours too. He says, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
the presence of a holy God. Isaiah, who's already in ministry at this time, I believe, if you go and study and look at the timeline, he's already in ministry. He's already kind of walking around, looking at everybody with all these unclean lips. Finally, it gets turned back to him. He cannot walk through the throne room of God saying, oh, well, I must be someone special for God to take me up here, right? Like, look at wonderful me. No, in the presence of a holy God, he says he's ruined. He says, woe is me. This isn't just, oh, oh, God's here. This is, woe, I'm ruined. This is judgment. He sees his sin, and he feels like he's about to be crushed. He mentions he's a man of unclean lips, which is perhaps the confession of one sin. Maybe Isaiah had a filthy mouth or a degrading mouth. We don't know. But the thing is, a, a filthy mouth is always an indicator of a, a filthy heart. And a filthy heart is an indicator of Isaiah and yours and mine's just total depravity. To the fact that we are all consumed with and made in a sin nature. I mean, we see sin. And Isaiah's sin was exposed under the light of God's holiness. I remember the first time I took my two-year-old daughter, Gloria, to Chuck E. Cheese. It was a fun experience, but I was terrified because there were people everywhere and a big mouse threatening to take my kid. And I was freaking out. And, like, I, I walked in and they, I said, how am I going to know somebody's not going to leave with my kid or I don't leave with the wrong kid? The place was confusing. And they put this stamp on my arm and on her arm. And I looked at it. There was no stamp. And I'm like, Hey, hey, there's no stamp here. What's going on? And the lady laughed, and she took out this ultraviolet light and just shined it over, and there it was. I could see it. Under, under that light, that ultraviolet light, that stamp was made visible and evident. It kind of felt like an idiot, but it was there, and that light passing over it exposed it. Friends, I like to think of our sin like that stamp and that light like the holiness of God, Right? We are all stamped with sin. We all have sin, but sometimes we're blinded to our sin. We say we look at ourselves and we're like, there's not that much sin here. But then the light of God's holiness shines upon us, and we see sin everywhere. I think as believers, we would do well to bask in the light of God's holiness, to expose our sin and not deny it. The more we spend time exposing ourselves to the holiness of God, the more correct view of our sinfulness we will see. Because even as believers, I would say sometimes, unfortunately, especially as believers, we look at the sins of the world around us and we're like, at least I'm not doing that, right? Like, my sin's really not that bad. And so, again, we laugh at eating too much king cake. I confess I made a joke of that. But maybe it's gluttony. We talk about discontentment or judgmentalism or self-sufficiency or materialism, an unthankful heart or greed. And, and we sit back and we say, man, Brian, chill out. Those aren't that bad. Like everybody struggles with that. But our every sin is woefully sinful. And we are woefully sinful as we compare ourselves not to other people but to God. When we compare ourselves to God, we will not find that we are wonderfully good, but woefully sinful. The holiness of God exposes that in our lives. But here's the blessing of having your sin exposed by the holiness of God. In your sinfulness, the sin sinner who comes and encounters a holy God who sees their sinfulness is in a position to encounter God's grace. Because God indeed is a holy God who will judge sin. But we must also remember that our God 
is grace. He is gracious. To just stop at the holiness of God and our sinfulness is only half of the story. It's only the half of the beauty and glory of our God and especially the gospel of Jesus Christ. Seeing our sin in his holiness prepares us for receiving his grace and paves the way for it. We need to celebrate and also bask in his grace. Notice verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. In that moment, I believe at the command of the Lord, this seraphim flies down with a tong, with a coal in it, touches Isaiah's lips, and he says, Your sin, all of your sin is forgiven. And I sit back and I look at them like, What? No! Isaiah's a sinner, man. He doesn't deserve to be forgiven. And I'll be honest, I look at my own life sometimes and I see the wretchedness of my own still indwelling sin. And I have a hard time sometimes believing in the sufficiency of God's grace. It's too good to be true, isn't it? And if you're like me, sometimes you sit under a cloud of self-imposed or satanic-imposed, however you want to look at it, condemnation. So many believers, I'm talking true believers, I'm talking people who have trusted in Christ and their lives have been transformed. They see their remaining indwelling sin and their response is, man, I'm ruined. God's going to kill me. I'm going to hell. And it's not what the scripture says. If we have a low view of God, we indeed might take sin too lightly and be a sin compromiser. His holiness rids us of that. But instead, sometimes the self-condemner mode that we can fall into takes our sin too seriously. We take sin too seriously because we say, my sin is so bad, even the grace of God is not enough to forgive it and atone for it. And that's wrong. (laughs) That flies in the face of the good news of the gospel. With verses like Romans 5, 8 that says, God demonstrates his love towards us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And verses like this that say, listen, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Listen, the, 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 self, the sin compromiser abuses 1 John 1, 9 and says, grace gives me a license to sin. The self-condemner doesn't believe it, that it's, it's too good to be true, that I can't be forgiven. But listen, neither one of those is a virtue. Some would say, I'd rather be a, a self-condemner than a sin compromiser. Listen, both of them fly in the face of the good news and the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in your moments of your self-condemnation, you need to preach the gospel to yourself, right? You need to look to the cross. How is Isaiah forgiven? The same way you and I are forgiven. That altar in which that seraphim flew from, I believe, points us to a greater sacrifice in the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah looked forward to the coming redeemer that was promised even all the way back in Genesis 3.15. We look back to that redeemer being Jesus who went to the cross for us. 
that when Jesus, this holy God, this holy king who must judge sin, who enjoyed the glories of heaven for all eternity, stepped off, off of his throne, took off his judicial robes, stepped onto planet earth as a man. He lived a life you and I could not live, and he died the death we deserve to die. He died in the place of sinners, and he satisfied the full fury of the wrath of God on our behalf. That's enough, friends. That's enough for God to say with all promises to you, believer, that your sins are forgiven. Because your forgiveness is not ever based on your works or your performance. And your ongoing forgiveness as a believer is not based on how good you're living for Jesus today. It's based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. And when you trust in Christ, your sin is forgiven freely, fully, finally, and forever. We need to wave the banner of Romans 8.1. When condemnation comes our way, we need to wave that banner that says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Believer, preach the gospel to yourself and believe it. Glorious. We have a gracious God. But my concern for a room this size is that there may be actually people here today who are still under a cloud of true condemnation. Because this passage shows there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So our question is, are you in Christ Jesus? Have you come to the point where you see that God is holy and you are sinful, and there's no good works, there's no good thing you could ever do. There's no other way to get to the Father in heaven but through his Son, Jesus Christ. See that. Listen. You're not saved by anything, Scripture says, but by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God is inviting you today, if you are convicted of his holiness and convicted of your sin, to place your faith in Jesus. He is the only way. And for those who do trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we see that God not only is gracious, but he transforms our lives and he shows us something of his missional, his missional character. And we need to surrender to God's mission and plan for our lives. We see this in Isaiah 6, 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. There's a job to do. There's a message to be shared, God is saying. And who are we going to send in Isaiah? Because he's gripped with the greatness of God and the glory of God and the grace of God. And his life's been transformed because he's encountered God, says, send me. I don't even know where you're sending me. I don't even know what it is, but send me. And guess what? God says, okay, we'll send you. And if you read on, he gives them a message of hardening, that no one's really going to listen He's, he's sent to dull the ears of the people of God to his truth. Although there's a remnant. There's a small pocket that God has set aside for himself that, Isaiah, that will listen and will hear. But by and large, Isaiah would be rejected and mocked and disregarded as God's spokesman. When we encounter this glorious God and experience his life-changing power in Christ then we join him on mission to make disciples by declaring and demonstrating the life-transforming power of the gospel, even when nobody appears to be listening. I'm familiar with a story of a high school young man who was 
so gripped by the greatness of God that he remained faithful to live for Christ and share Christ in a high school where really nobody was listening. In fact, this man went to uh, play baseball at this school because it had a really good baseball program, but quickly realized that God had put him there for a much bigger reason. He was perhaps, and I would say and testify, the only believer in this entire school and God had stuck them in him in that school so he could be a light to his classmates and to his baseball teammates. And by and large, nobody was listening to him. He was often the target of mocking and misunderstanding. But he continually shared Christ with his teammates and classmates and prayed for them. Graduation came and no one had responded in faith in Christ. But in college, by God's providence, this young man would be reunited with some of his unbelieving baseball teammates and classmates and even live with them in a rental house in college for a year. This young man remained faithful to share Christ and live for Christ every time he could, but still nobody appeared to be listening, nobody was getting saved, and he was still, I promise you, I read that often the target of mocking and misunderstanding, but he remained faithful. These young men would go their separate ways with nobody coming to Christ. This young man who faithfully lived for and shared Christ for all these years felt like the gospel had fallen on deaf ears. That was until one of his baseball teammates gave him a call several years later. And that young man who was faithful rejoiced and wept that the person at the other end of that line said that he was saved and it was largely in part surely to the grace of God, but in part due to the faithfulness of him sharing and living for Christ in those years where he thought nobody was listening. What a story, right? It's a great story. I mean, wouldn't it be cool to be in that story? Well, I'm here to tell you this morning, I am in that story. Because I was the unsaved baseball teammate that this young man shared Christ with faithfully over and over and over again. And this man right here, Jeff Earhart, is in that story too. Your pastor's in this story because he was the one who was faithful to share Christ with me over and over and over again. Even though it seemed like I was not listening. He was faithful. Gripped by the glory of God. Gripped by the holiness of God, gripped by the grace of God, surrendered to the mission of God, sharing Christ with a bunch of dudes that didn't want to hear it, but he remained faithful. And we sit here today, mind blown at the grace of God for the glory of God that I'm preaching in his church. God is amazing. And as a pastor now, I have opportunity to always share my testimony with the people I lead. And I kid you not, when I am trying to challenge people to leave from the church and be a light in the community, to make disciples in the community, to take the message of the gospel to the community, I say, you go be someone's Jeff Earhart this week. Who is your Jeff Earhart, I would ask them. Or are you someone's Jeff Earhart? Are you someone's Jeff Earhart? And I'll ask you this morning, are you someone's Jeff Earhart. Can someone look at you and say, that's somebody who lives for Jesus, who shares Jesus, no matter if anyone is listening or not. You be someone's Jeff Earhart today and this week. Be gripped by the glory and the grace and the holiness of God and share the gospel faithfully, even if no one appears to be listening 
because you never know. God has set aside a remnant of those he has chosen before the foundation of the world to respond to the truth of the gospel. You just be faithful. You share and you watch him do his work. As you behold him as being truly glorious, truly mind-blowing, truly wonderful and beautiful, that he will continue to transform you and your life. He will move you beyond the mundane of everyday life as you surrender to him and he uses you to declare and demonstrate the life-transforming power of the gospel that people don't even listen to. It's our role to share. We are on a mission, gripped by the grace of God and the glory of God, to approach human beings or who are hardwired by God so that they become in awe of God, to have their minds blown by God, their hearts expanded with God, to be taken beyond the normal, the mundane, for them to be absorbed into what is truly wonderful and beautiful and satisfying, namely God, by beholding and believing in his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of the gospel that saved a sinful guy like me. Thank you for the example of Jeff and his faithfulness to not just share you, but love you and live for you and be gripped by you. So many more stories I could tell about watching him live for you throughout my time knowing him. But this sermon's already long enough, Lord, and I just pray that you would use your truth to just swell up within each of us a awe-inspired view of who you are that we'd be floored by your holiness and even floored deeper by your grace. It's amazing. May we go from here today being a light to someone else who needs to know how awesome you are. Father, if there's anyone here that does not yet know you, may they come to faith in Christ today. It's in Jesus' name we pray.